Tonight we begin at Matthew chapter 22, and even though there's some six or seven chapters left in the Gospel of Matthew, even though we're really only about two-thirds of the way through Matthew, we've got a whole third of the book left, we're dealing already with the last week of Jesus before the cross. In the last chapter, Matthew chapter 21, we saw the triumphal entry where Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, with the crowds chanting and welcoming him and, and uh, praising him and welcoming him as the Messiah. And then we saw that Jesus went and he uh, drove the money changers and the merchants out of the temple. And by now, when we come to Matthew chapter 22, it's probably Tuesday on this last week of Jesus before the cross. It always feels a little awkward talking about it, doesn't it? Because you don't want to act like this is the last week of his life. It's not the last week of his life. He rose again three days later. But it's the last week before he went to the cross. And on this probably Tuesday, the specific day isn't so important, but we just know that the time's short, he's up on the temple courts in that great open area where crowds would gather. And again, I want to remind you, that at this time, Jerusalem was packed with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pilgrims, uh, a good number of them from the area of Galilee who were very familiar with the ministry of Jesus already. And as they came into Jerusalem, many, many people wanted to hear Jesus teach on the temple uh, courts, in the temple courts. Now, this caused a lot of controversy and we can't say that Jesus is sort of without blame in the controversy. He deliberately started or encouraged a lot of this controversy because he gave forth some parables that were extremely critical of the religious leaders. And tonight in Matthew chapter 22, we're going to see how this conflict with the religious leaders continues. Let's just start here. Uh, chapter 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged for a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. So here Jesus is explaining both to the religious leaders, I mean, as I've told you many times before, the, the movie that kind of runs in my head. There's, there's many people around Jesus on the temple courts. He's teaching them. It would be the traditional posture. Jesus would be sitting. His listeners would be standing. And you've got one section, or maybe they're scattered throughout, of the religious leaders. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests. They're listening to Jesus with great concern. Because he is openly challenging them and criticizing them and coming against their authority. But far outnumbering the religious leaders, there's a multitude, there's a crowd that's there to listen to Jesus. So remember, this parable is meant to be heard by both the religious leaders and the crowds in general. And so he speaks in verse 2 about a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now, a wedding was in that day, and it often is today, isn't it? The most significant social event of a person's life. Right? You, you go visit somebody's home many times, and what do they often have up on the wall? They have some kind of wedding picture or something like that. It, it, they, they mean to so because it's an extremely important social event in a person's life. And of course, this was very true in the ancient world. And if you had a king whose son was getting married... That wedding, that occasion, that social event, it would be memorable by every, it would be the event of the year, if not 10 years. And so what does he do? He sent out his servants, verse 3, to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Now, once you notice something, the, the, these people were being invited, they decided not to come, which would have been very strange. Isn't it strange that those people who were invited, they refused to come to a royal wedding? Now, verse 4, again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. 
and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now, the, the one thing I want you to notice, first of all, is in some ways this parable doesn't make sense as a description of literal historical events. It's not meant to, right? It's a story Jesus is telling. And so on the one hand, you would say, well, it, it would seem very strange to me that the um, man, the king who was offended, could in one day send out armies to strike down all of his enemies and all of this. And why would people kill somebody for inviting them to a wedding? It doesn't make any sense. But again, it's not meant to. It's not meant to make sense as if it was telling an actual story. Jesus is illustrating what you might call the spiritual insanity of these religious leaders. Just as much as we read the story and says, it makes no sense for somebody to kill somebody for inviting them to a wedding. In the same way, it literally made no sense for the religious leaders to reject Jesus the Messiah the way that they were doing. And it is interesting. Verse 4 says, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, fatted cattle are killed, and so forth and so on. The, the, the king persisted in making this invitation as attractive as possible. He really wanted those people who were invited to come, right? Hey, look at the great dinner. Look at the menu. Look at all we're going to... I want you to come to my son's wedding. By the way, it sort of ties in with the historical custom of the time, according to William Barclay, when a great social event such as a wedding happened in the Jewish culture of that day, people were invited to attend and they were told the day of the event, but not the time. Because the whole party, the whole feast would take a long time to get ready, right? And so basically what it is, you say, okay, set aside this day, this is going to be the day. Okay, great. And then when it was time to come to the feast, when it was time to come to the party, then you would be called. Well, these people were invited. Now they're told, hey, it's ready. Come on to the party. And they refuse. And not only do they refuse, but it says they mistreat the servants that are sent to them. By the way, I love that line in verse 4, where it says, all things are ready, come to the wedding. Wouldn't you say that that's the message of the gospel? All things are ready, come to the wedding. You don't come to God's feast and prepare your own meal. He's made it ready for you. So you just come and receive from what God has for you. Anyway, verse 5, it says that they made light of it, they went their ways. Again, this makes no sense, but it gives an accurate description of the reaction of many people to the gospel. Many people, when they hear the gospel, they make light of it. Many people go back to their business. They've got more important things to think about, more important things to do. And then verse 7 it says that this king was furious and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers. The king rightfully brought judgment upon those offenders. And not only did they reject his invitation, but they also murdered his messengers. And might I say this? That this was a sort of obscure prophecy of Jesus of exactly what would happen to Jerusalem, the city where the religious leaders so strongly and so persistently rejected Jesus and his gospel. All right, now verse 8, the third invitation. Then he said to his servants, The, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Isn't this interesting? The people to whom the invitation went out first rejected it. But now this second group is go out and just invite anybody, good and bad, worthy and unworthy. Invite them to come into the wedding. The king was determined that he would not have an empty banquet hall. And so the invitation was given out to everybody who would hear. Now again, all were invited, good and bad. Wouldn't you say that in some sense, you can say that this is a parable about grace. Those who were invited and those who came were utterly undeserving of the invitation. The invitation just went out. Well, I, I'm good, I'm bad, doesn't matter. You're invited, you come. Now, 
This is sort of the first half of the parable, right? And it fits in very well with the parables that Jesus has told that we saw last week in Matthew chapter 21. For example, remember the parable of the two sons who were both commanded to do the work? And one said, I'll do it, and he never went. And the other said, I won't, but he actually did. Jesus was saying, just because you say it doesn't mean it's true. What matters before God is the actual doing of it. And then Jesus told the parable at the end of Matthew chapter 21 about this man who had a vineyard, and the vineyard was leased out to these workers, but the workers would not give the master the fruit, the pay, the income from it, and so he had to bring judgment upon them and give the vineyard to other people who would manage it well. And basically the message to the religious leaders of the Jews right here of Jesus is very powerful, is what he's saying is, you guys are blowing it. You're rejecting me. You're rejecting God's invitation. Don't think that God's going to shut down his banquet just because you reject the invitation. If you reject it, the invitation will go out to other people as well. That's the first part of this parable. Now here's part two, verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Maybe I should stop right there. The man without the robe was conspicuous by his difference. He came inappropriately dressed and the king noticed. Now what I find interesting about this is that there's debate among the commentators as to if it was customary in that day for a king or a nobleman to offer his guests a garment to wear at such occasions. You, know, you go to the feast, and there at the door they give you a garment. Now, I, I have to say, I had always heard that that was customary in those days. But, but in my research for this chapter, I found that even though there is some evidence that that happened in the Greek world, there's mention to it in certain Greek poems and plays and such, there's really not much evidence for this thing and that kind of thing happening in first century Judea or Palestine. And so we really don't know if the man just came in dirty clothes that he had. Do you understand what I mean? It's as if he just came from work and he didn't dress up for a wedding the way that you should or something. Or if he refused a garment that was offered to him at the door. I think that either way, that's not really key to understanding. He wasn't properly... Uh, set out or looking or in appearance. He, he didn't fit in at the wedding because he wasn't dressed appropriately. So let's read here again, starting at verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And here, once more, we see sort of the extreme character of parables, right? They're, they're stories meant to illustrate. We don't think that there was actually a king who held a banquet in these days, and a guy was wearing the wrong clothes, so he tortured him and killed him. We, we don't think that that happened. But Jesus is using this to illustrate a very important thing here. Here is this man who accepted the invitation to come to... The, the, he accepted the invitation that other people did not, but he didn't follow the rules of the feast. He didn't respect the king. He didn't honor the king. He, he didn't say, King, I want to honor you and your son. I'll dress like I'm supposed to at a wedding. No, he did not. You see, the man was out of place. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said this, he came because he was invited, but he came only in appearance. The banquet was intended to honor the king's son, but this man meant nothing of the kind. He was willing to eat the good things set before him, but in his heart there was no love either for the king or for his well-beloved son. This man cared nothing for the king. He didn't want to honor him. He didn't want to respect him. And when the king confronted him, did you see what it says there? It says, but he was speechless. And so what was the penalty? 
He was cast out into the outer darkness. The man who did as he pleased at the wedding feast, instead of honoring the king, instead of conforming to his expectations, he suffered a terrible fate. Once more from Spurgeon here. He says this. He had by his actions, if not in words, said, I'm a free man. I'll do what I like. You understand? Hey, I don't need to dress up to this king's wedding feast. You know, well, I'll just dress up. He, he, in his mind, total freedom. Now Spurgeon goes on. So the king said to his servants, bind him, imprison him, let him never be free again. He had been, he had made too free with holy things. He had actively insulted the king. Now, the larger part in both, larger message, I should say, in both parts of the parable is clear enough. Some people are invited but refuse to come, right? But, but then other people who do respond to the invitation, they won't conform their life to the will and the wishes of the king, and therefore they're rejected. Now, I have to say, this is really astonishing when you think about this parable. It demonstrates that you could say three different groups of people all have the same fate. There are those who are indifferent to the gospel. You know what that means, right? Indifferent, you don't care. You hear the gospel, you hear your spiritual need, maybe somebody tells you about it, you don't care, you've got other that's just not your interest. You're interested in other things. You're interested in what's on the television set. You're interested in what's going on in pop culture. You're interested in your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You're interested in this, you're interested in that, you're interested in your career, whatever. You just have no interest. You're indifferent to the gospel. That was the way many of the people responded. Now, there were other people who were openly antagonistic. In other words, when the messengers from the king came in, they attacked them, right? I'm going to attack you, and I'm going to kill you, messenger of the king. So those who were indifferent, those who were antagonistic, and then the third group, those who were unchanged by the invitation. They came to the wedding, but they didn't think it had to affect the way they acted one bit. The indifferent the antagonistic, and the unchanged all had the same fate. None of them enjoyed the king's feast. Now look, we, we understand sometimes, we, we, we understand that the person who's antagonistic to the gospel, if somebody's come and sharing the Lord with you, sharing the gospel with you, and you punch him in the nose, we understand that's a bad thing, and, and you know God is probably not pleased with you. We need to understand indifference to the gospel is the same before the Lord, and not allowing your life to be changed by the gospel is the same. And then if you noticed, in verse 14, Jesus said something. For many are called, but few are chosen. It's an absolutely fascinating statement of Jesus in this context. Absolutely fascinating. This statement of Jesus in this context touches on the great working together of the choices of man and the choices of God. Let me ask you a question. Think about the parable, okay? Are you thinking about it? Why did they not come to the wedding party? Because they refused the invitation, right? Did, did the king go to them and say, I don't want you to come to my wedding party? No, no, no. The king said, come. Why did they not come? Because they refused the invitation. But then, why did they not come to the wedding party? And then Jesus says, because they were called, but not chosen. Now you start wrapping your head around that. Well, which one was it? Was it because they refused the invitation? Or, or was it because they, they weren't chosen? And Jesus would probably just say to us, yes. Yes, they refused the invitation. Yes, they weren't chosen. Now, how do you want to be one of the chosen? Accept the invitation. Then you know. Then you have the assurance you're one of the chosen. But I find this to be a fascinating end line in this particular parable. Well, verse 15 now. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying... Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I find this very interesting. On the one hand, I used to look at this and say, oh, these Pharisees, they're bad, bad guys. And you know what? They are bad guys. But let's face it. Jesus has been poking them in the chest with two or three very strong parables right against these guys, right? There's no doubt about it. Jesus has been really laying it to the religious leaders, and now the religious leaders are standing up, and they're saying, listen, we're going to come back at you, Jesus. We're going to attack you right back. This is the counterattack of the religious leaders against Jesus. And you can just see it. Verse 15 is very expressive there, right? They plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. By the way, doesn't this show us the wisdom and the glory of Jesus? Nobody has to plot very much to figure out how to entangle me in my talk. If you want to trip me up, if you want to make me look stupid, if you know that, you don't have to do all that much planning to do that. But they had to think really, really hard to do this with Jesus. And they still didn't succeed. But there they are, plotting that they might entangle him in his talk. And then verse 16, they say, look at how they begin. We know that you're true and that you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. There they are. They plotted together. They planned together. How are we going to get Jesus? How can we make him look foolish? And they started, okay, first we'll flatter him. We'll tell him nice things about himself so that he lets down his guard, so that he becomes more open. So he's just sort of, oh, these guys are my friends. They're not attacking me. Well, sure, I'll just listen to whatever they have to say. They hoped that Jesus was insecure enough to be impressed by their flattery or, or foolish enough to be impressed by their hollow praise. By the way, I, I would have to say that this compliment that they paid to Jesus Not only was it treacherous because it was false, but do you see what a low view they have of Jesus? This fool from Nazareth. You know, if we just tell him a few nice things, then we'll have him in the palm of our hand. He's just a simpleton. He's a vain man that we can easily flatter. But then in verse 17, they come and bring the knife behind those nice words. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the dilemma behind this question was very simple. First of all, they're asking, is it lawful? They don't mean lawful according to Roman law. Of course, Roman law said you have to pay taxes to Rome. They want to know that if it was lawful according to the law of God. And if Jesus said that these Roman taxes should be paid then he could be accused of denying the sovereignty of God over Israel. And that could make him very unpopular with the Jewish people. But if he said that the taxes should not be paid, then he makes himself an enemy of Rome. And he gets himself into trouble. Now, William Barclay, who, by the way, often has some really interesting historical insights, he claims that in Palestine of that time that there were three regular taxes that were paid. The the first tax was called the ground tax, and this was a 10% tax on grain production and a 20% tax on oil and wine, okay? The ground tax. Secondly, there was the income tax, which was... 1% of a man's income. Because you have 10% of the grain or 20% of the oil or wine, and then you have 1% of your income, the second tax. The third tax was called the poll tax. And it was paid by every man between 14 years old and 65 years old, and by every woman between 12 years old to 65 years old. That tax was a denarius a year, and this is the tax that the uh, Jewish questioners, that the Pharisees and the uh, Herodians wanted to know about this from Jesus. And so this was the issue. You, You see, to pay the poll tax was to in some way declare submission to Rome. The uh, radicals, the zealots, 
I hope it's not being too extreme to call them terrorists because that's basically what they were. The, the, the terrorist or zealot party in that day, they claimed that the poll tax was a God-dishonoring badge of slavery to the pagans, according to D.A. Carson. And I think that's, that's true. So here Jesus is on this dilemma. Do you pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now again, in the, in the picture... It goes in my mind, the movie that runs. You know, they ask this question, and these questioners of Jesus, they just have this look on their face. Oh, we have him. He can't ask this. By the way, did you notice how they ask the question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're demanding a yes or no answer from him, right? They think they have backed him into a corner. They think they've put him into a trap. They think there's no way he can escape such a cleverly designed question. But look at what Jesus answers, verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled, they left him, and went their way. Now, Jesus with this wise answer, showed that he was in complete control. He rebuked the wickedness, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Herodians. He held up that coin before them, and he said, you acknowledge Caesar's sovereignty over you, at least in some measure, because you use his coins. What is that in your hand? What is that in your pocket? And that's why Jesus could rightfully call them hypocrites, right? Because they're saying, well, we would have nothing to do with showing such submission to Caesar. Oh, yeah? Then why do you have his image in your very pocket? Now, this actually is a very important passage in the New Testament for understanding something that's very important, the relationship between uh, the civil government, the state, and God's kingdom. Jesus affirmed here, that the government makes legitimate requests of us. That the government can ask for taxes, and the Christian is obliged to pay it. We are responsible to God in all things, but we must also be obedient to the government in these civil matters. I like how Peter said it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. He said this, he said, Fear God, honor the king. Isn't that simple? Five words, and in the right order. First, you fear God. God comes first, but you also honor the king. And when you honor the king, you're not disgracing God. It's very important for us to understand. And you can draw this very clearly from Romans chapter 13, that God has instituted civil government for the blessing of man. And Jesus says, I recognize that, and you should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Paul knew it in Romans 13. Peter knew it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Like what William Barclay said here. He said, every Christian is a double citizen. He's a citizen of the country in which he happens to live. To it he owns many things. He owes the safety against lawless men, which only a settled government can give. He owes all public service. There is a legitimate, God-ordained role for the governments of this world. God uses them to keep order in society. God uses them, as Romans 13 says, to punish evildoers. So yes, there's a very legitimate sphere for civil government, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But what does he say in verse 21? And to God the things that are God's. What, what made that coin, Caesar's coin, and you understand, it had his image upon it, right? Wh whose image is upon our soul? 
whose image is upon us, just as much as a coin is stamped with the image of some politician or scientist or whoever, so we are stamped with the image of God, and that means we belong to God. We don't belong to Caesar. We don't belong even to ourselves. So Caesar has his rights, and God has his rights. And by treating them as distinct, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. You can be a true citizen of my kingdom, and yet you can still submit to the civil rule of a foreign king. By the way, this establishes something else too, that there are limits to the government's authority. The state is not all-powerful. Jesus did not say, Render unto Caesar the things are Caesar's, and he has everything. No, no, no. Jesus said Caesar has what is his, but God has what is his. And, and, and God forbid, if Caesar, so to speak, infringes upon that is what belongs to God alone. So this is a very important principle. It, it is the principle that some theologians call, <coughs> pardon me, the principle of the two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of man, civil government, but then there's also the kingdom of God. Now, one other thing to think about before we go on to verse 23. The old covenant, especially in its blessings and cursings, promised Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you, God says, and I will give you your own land and you will not be under the heel of the oppressor. God promised that to an obedient Israel. Well, what does this tell you? That Israel was, in general, in disobedience because they were under Roman domination. I'll say this. If the Jewish people, and I don't just mean for one day, but but of that generation, if the Jewish people of that generation had rendered to God what was due to him, they would have never had to render anything to Caesar. Because God promised an obedient Israel that no one would rule over them. In the New Testament times, they would have never had to endure the occupying oppression of the Roman Empire if they would have been obedient to their covenant with God. Now on to verse 23. Can we just agree, Jesus won this little contest about the coin and taxes and all of that? Verse 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. By the way, can I just add for a minute? I don't think they were really with them seven brothers. I think they're making up an occasion. Don't you think so? This is probably just one of the stories they say to ridicule the idea of the resurrection. I don't think there were actually this, this situation actually existed. Anyway, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be, for they all had her? Do you understand this? First of all, do you understand who the Sadducees are? The Sadducees were the ancient version of the modern liberal theologians. They were anti-supernaturalistic. In other words, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they they didn't believe in uh, the Holy Scriptures beyond the first five books of Moses. They said, that's the only Scriptures we'll believe in. They, they, They disregarded what was written in those books and in the other scriptural books of the Old Testament, when it pleased them to do so. So you had the Sadducees. And then they come and they ask this question about this family with seven brothers and the one wife who's widowed seven times over. By the way, don't you think they should start suspecting the wife of murder or something in this occasion? You, you start losing seven husbands, and you know you'd think that the detectives or something back then would look into this. But, but anyway... This is all based on a command given in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that said that if a married man died childless, it was the responsibility 
of his brother, if he had a brother, to provide children to the dead man's name by impregnating his widowed wife. And then the child would be counted as the deceased husband's descendant. Okay, so that, that was the whole point. They called this practice levirate marriage. It, it comes from the Latin term levir, which means brother-in-law. So it, it's the marriage of the brother-in-law to provide offspring, and the offspring is in the name of that. And so they, they concoct this fanciful occasion where seven brothers die trying to provide children to the heir. And, and here's the question. They think they really got Jesus with them. Okay, Jesus, Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They're, they're probably thinking, okay, there they are in the resurrected world, you know, in the heavens or whatever. And there's seven brothers up there. And the wife finally comes up to heaven. And they all run to her and say, you're my wife, you're my wife, you're my wife. And they have a big fight amongst each other. No, she's my wife. And they're all pulling on her and this and that. Whose wife is she? Again, I think of this satisfied smile that would be on the face of the questioners of Jesus. They think, oh, we've got him on this one. But look at this. Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. The first thing Jesus said to them, you are mistaken. You quoted to me a biblical passage, or they at least they based it on the Deuteronomy chapter 25 passage, but they weren't thinking through the passage correctly. These highly trained men were mistaken in their basic understanding of biblical truth. And then Jesus said something to him very bold here in verse 29. He said, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Again, this must have been a shocking thing for these educated theologians to hear from Jesus. They thought of themselves as totally educated, totally sophisticated. They had all that they should have had according to the qualifications of that day. But Jesus looked at them square in the eye and says, you don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. Now this was true of them even though religion was their career and they were highly trained. Isn't it fascinating? That Jesus spoke to these professional religious men and he said, you don't know the scriptures. You know, it's possible for a person to have a lot of Bible knowledge and yet not fundamentally know the scriptures. I like what Paul later said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He said this, Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. This suggests that biblical truth has a pattern to it. The pattern of sound words. And this pattern can be discerned and detected by someone with biblical wisdom. It also suggests that somebody can lose this pattern because Paul told Timothy, you hold fast to it. The, the, the Sadducees had biblical knowledge, but they didn't hold fast to the pattern of sound words. And many people today are like the Sadducees in this respect. They know a verse here, they know a verse there, they, they may know a certain disconnected biblical truth, but they just don't have an idea of the message of the Bible as a whole. But notice, this wasn't the only problem with them. They didn't know the scriptures, but what else didn't they know? They didn't know the power of God. The Sadducees denied supernatural truths such as the existence of angelic beings and the bodily resurrection. They had a fundamental doubt of the power of God to do things beyond what they could measure or to understand that in the material world, God can do things that are just beyond our recognition. And many people today are like the Sadducees. I like what... Uh, what um, Matthew Poole said about this. He said, if you knew the power of God, this is what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, if you, excuse me, to the Sadducees, if you knew the power of God, you would know that God is able to raise the dead. If you knew the scriptures, you would know that God will raise the dead. And that's why Jesus con condemned them on both. Now starting in verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage 
but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now notice how Jesus replies, beginning at verse 30. First, he says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. This was their big question, right? Whose wife is she going to be? Are the brothers going to fight over her in heaven? No, Jesus says. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus reminded them of something that sometimes we forget. These men assumed that resurrection life was just the continuation of this same life, except maybe better. No, Jesus says no. Resurrection life doesn't just continue this world's arrangements, but it's life of a completely different order. Now this passage has made many people wonder if marriage relationships will exist in heaven, or or if those who are husband and wife on earth will have a special relationship in heaven. Now listen, we're not told enough about life and the world beyond to answer this in great detail, but we can understand a couple principles. Number one, family relationships will still be known in, the, in life in the world beyond. The, remember the story Jesus told about the rich man uh, who went to Hades and Lazarus? The rich man Jesus described in the afterlife was aware of his family relationships. Secondly, we know that the glory of heaven will be a relationship with God and a connection with God that surpasses everything else, including present family relationships. You see, it seems that life in the resurrection in some ways doesn't include some of the things that we know on earth, some of the good things that we know on earth. But it's only because what we have in heaven will so far surpass what we know on earth. Look, we can't be completely certain what life and glory is going to be like beyond this life, but we can know this. Nobody's going to be disappointed. Now look, the the question isn't merely theoretical. You know, there will be many people in heaven who have had more than one spouse, right? Isn't that true? And so if they have some, you know, whose wife will she be? It's not a totally irrational explanation or, or question. But Jesus here told us that jealousy and exclusion will find no place in heaven. Our relationship with God will be so glorious and will so overwhelm our lives that it will overshadow the relationships that we have one with another. I like what D.A. Carson said about this. He said, The greatness of the changes at the resurrection will doubtless make the wife of even seven brothers capable of loving all of them and of being the object of love of all of them. As a good mother today loves all her children and is loved by them. Now think about it. There's different kinds of love, right? There's the love that you have between a husband and a wife. And that love is to be an exclusive love, right? It's not right for the the husband to love more than one woman that way. It's not right for the wife to love more than one man in that way. We understand that. But that's not the only kind of love there is, right? Look at the love that a mother has for her children. Does she pick and choose? Well, you're the one I really love. And the rest of them, forget about it. Or, Or does she say... I can only receive love from one of you. No, if she's a good mother at all, she loves them all and she receives love from them. Truly love, just of a different kind. The kind of love, the kind of relationship we have in heaven will not be exclusive, it won't be jealous, but it'll be real and it'll be glorious. I have to say one more thing before we go on. This biblical understanding of heaven is dramatically different from the more sensual dreams of heaven, such as those found in Islamic theology and Mormon theology. 
know, in Mormon theology, it's very important that you have celestial heavenly wives uh, if you're a Mormon man. And, and you make spirit babies with your celestial heavenly wives. And of course, in Islamic theology, heaven or paradise is a place filled with sensual pleasures. And again, it's a very different conception according to the Bible. Now, verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Again, I have to say, every time Jesus said something like this, it must have driven these religious leaders crazy to have Jesus, and quite rightly so, look at them in the eye and accusing them of not knowing their Bibles, because they didn't. But Jesus here is going to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection using only the first five books of the Bible, right? Because those were the only books of the Bible that the Sadducees accepted as valid. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus quotes from this verse in Exodus where it says very plainly, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus points out, he says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Hey, Sadducees, you say there is no resurrection? You bring me this question to mock the idea of the res resurrection? Let me tell you that the Bible teaches us there is a resurrection because God says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Otherwise, God would have told this to Moses. He would have said, you know, I was the God of Abraham. Abraham's gone now. But, but when Abraham was living, I was his God. And then when Isaac was living, I was his God. And then when Jacob was living, I was his God. But no, he says, I am the God of those men because they still exist. God is the God of the living. Like what John Calvin said about this. He said, as no man can be a father without children, nor a king without people, so strictly speaking, the Lord cannot be called the God of any but the living. So Jesus answered their question, and again, the people were absolutely blown away. It says there in verse 33, and when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So another round in this battle or in this boxing match, whatever you want to call it, it goes over to Jesus. Now, verse 34, here's another question. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Right, you can see them, all their little huddle, right? Again, okay, now we're really going to get him. What's the question we're going to get now? We've got to win here. He's beating us very badly. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now the Jewish rabbis counted them up and they said there were 613 commandments of the law. And they used to rank them. They say, well, these are the important ones, these are the unimportant ones. By the way, oftentimes the unimportant ones are the ones they said were unimportant. They felt that they could break or ignore them without any problem. So here, the, the, the opponents of Jesus are working very hard. They're trying to get Jesus to say that some of the law is unimportant. Is he going to fall for it? No, verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus perfectly understood the essence of the law, and therefore he had no difficulty answering this question. He defined the law in its core principles. Love the Lord with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, can I say something? Doesn't this make the law of God so much easier to understand? You, you just look at it. You look at the law of God. You look at the Ten Commandments. The, the Ten Commandments say that I shall not bear false witness against my neighbor. Well, listen, if I love my neighbor, why would I ever bear false Why would I ever lie about my neighbor if I love them? The Ten Commandments say I shall not steal. If I love my neighbor, why would I ever steal from them? The Ten Commandments say that I shouldn't take the name of the Lord God in vain. If I love the Lord God, why would I ever take his name in vain? See, it all comes down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But this is what we often misunderstand. 
we think that because the law can be simplified and made simple to understand, that somehow it's simple to perform. I've got a humble question to ask you, to ask myself. Has there ever been 24 hours where I have loved the Lord God with all my heart, soul, and mind? Have I ever gone a single day truly loving my neighbor as myself? I'm just trying to point out, Jesus did make the law much easier to understand, but it's not any easier to do. No, we need him to be our righteousness, right? Thank heavens that Jesus did this on our behalf, that Jesus kept the law perfectly on our behalf. But Jesus rightly said at verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. God's moral expectation of man can be briefly and powerfully said in these two sentences. What does God expect of man? God expects man to love him with all his heart, soul, and mind. And God expects man to love one another, love our neighbor as ourself. If the life of God is real in our life, it will show by the presence of this love for God and for others. Listen, if Jesus is in your life, we understand that, don't we? We talk to little children that way, right? Having Jesus in your heart, and it's a great way to talk to children. I believe Jesus, yes, it's good for children. It's good for all of us to have Jesus in your heart. But if Jesus is in your heart, it should be expressed by a lifestyle that does love God and that does love other people. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, and by the way, now Jesus is going to ask them a question. They've tried repeatedly to try to trap Jesus, to to try to put him in a corner, to try to make him look foolish, to try to get him in trouble with the Romans or with the multitudes. They've tried all this. They've utterly failed. Now Jesus is going to ask them a question. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ... Whose son is he? Of course, when he says Christ there, you know he means Messiah, right? Hey, uh, you scholars, you experts in the Old Testament, you, you wonderful theologians, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is the Messiah? Now, this was a similar question to that which Jesus asked of his disciples way back in Matthew chapter 16. Remember when Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? I I wonder if his opponents didn't know that he was talking about himself at this point. Look at how they answered at the end of verse 42. They said to him, The Son of David. Now, of course, this is one of the great Old Testament titles of the Messiah. It's founded on the covenant that God made with King David in 2 Samuel 7. And it defines the Messiah or the Christ as the chosen descendant of King David's royal line. There's beautiful passage in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 23, Isaiah chapter 9, and then coming into the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, that all speak of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, being the son of David, this messianic fulfillment of this promise. And so they say the son of David. by, By the way, I wonder if the religious leaders, the Pharisees, if they knew what they were getting into when they answered this. They they just answer quickly according to their biblical knowledge. The Messiah is the son of David. By the way, that was the most common messianic title, both, you you could say, not necessarily the Old Testament, but abroad in that day. When they thought of the Messiah, they thought son of David. Mostly what they were thinking about is a great and mighty king, like King David was. That's what they were looking for. And I I just wonder if they understood that Jesus was descended from the royal line of King David. It's possible that the Pharisees did not know or had forgotten that Jesus was of the line of King David and that he was even born in Bethlehem, the city of David. I find it interesting that just last chapter we saw that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day we call Palm Sunday, it was noted that he was a man from Nazareth. And maybe the connection to King David and Bethlehem had been unknown or forgotten. 
So they're, they're walking right into a trap, right? They, they've been setting all these traps for, for Jesus, and now he sets one for them. Verse 43. He said to them, How then does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, and now he quotes from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, the the Pharisees were partially right in saying that the Messiah is the son of David, but they didn't have a complete understanding of who the Messiah is. He's not only the son of David, but he's also David's Lord, as spoken of, in the psalm that Jesus quoted, Psalm 110. Now, this is really interesting. It refers both to the humanity of Jesus and his deity. I really like how this is communicated in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, which says this. Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David. The root of David would be David's Lord, right? The offspring of David would be the son of David. They're both combined in one person. Or or Romans chapter 1 verse 4, which shows Jesus as both the son of David and the son of God. We can't neglect either aspects of Jesus' person. He's truly man and he's truly God. And, And he can only be our savior if he's both. Verse 45. If David then calls him Lord How is he his son? Jesus' brilliantly simple explanation of the scriptures put the Pharisees on the defensive. They didn't want to admit that the Messiah was also the Lord. But Jesus showed it was true from the scriptures. Again, Jesus is saying, you think of the Messiah as the son of David. He is, but he is also the son of God. That's what Jesus was getting through to them. With verse 46, we finish the chapter. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. The religious leaders hoped to trap Jesus and to embarrass him in front of the Passover pilgrims that crowded Jerusalem and were there up on the temple courts to hear him teach. Yet Jesus embarrassed them instead. You have to say, though, that their silence was a tribute to him. That this Jesus, this Jesus who never attended their fancy theological rabbinical schools, he absolutely succeeded in this confrontation with the greatest theologians of his time. And if the question, I like this, D.A. Carson points this out, His question was unanswerable at the time, verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? There was a Pharisee who later on figured this out. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And by the way, he may very well have been one of those listening to Jesus. He might have been one of the ones questioning Jesus here up on the Temple Mount in this final week before the crucifixion of Jesus. He figured it out. Romans chapter 1 tells us that he figured out how Jesus could be both David's son and David's Lord. But nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Logic and rhetoric proved useless in attacking Jesus. Now his enemies were going to resort to treachery and violence. Jesus was done debating with the religious leaders. From here on out, he's going to speak not primarily to the religious leaders, he's going to speak to the crowd. His conflict directly with the religious leaders is over in the Gospel of Matthew. Oh, oh, they're going to come after him. They're going to induce Judas to betray him. They're, They're going to use violence against him. But Jesus is done arguing with the religious leaders, now primarily He's going to speak to the crowds. But you know what the subject of his next speech to the crowds is? Matthew chapter 23 is one of the most amazing, strong 
brutal chapters in the entire Bible where Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. And that'll be for the next time we're together. But here we see Jesus, utterly triumphant, able to answer their questions. Might I just leave on this very practical point? You know, you see Jesus, and it's very easy to be impressed with him, as we should be. Wow! All these guys came, and they tried to confuse Jesus, and they tried to trap him, and it was no problem for Jesus. Jesus triumphed over all of them. Doesn't that really tell us that Jesus can answer our questions? That Jesus can deal with our problems? They, they all worked very hard to, to put Jesus in a problem that he couldn't solve. And they never succeeded. I'll say, you will never succeed either in putting Jesus into a problem that he can't solve. So this gives us great comfort, doesn't it? I mean, we all have problems. We all have things that go on in our life. We go, Lord, how are you going to do this? Well, that's what you do. You take it to God and you ask Him to deal with it. You bring it to Jesus and every time you try to take it back unto yourself, you bring it back to Jesus all over again and let Him deal with it. Because He'll deal with it with His perfect wisdom and with His authority. So Father, that's our prayer tonight. That you would help us, Lord, to understand, to really live that. That you have the answer to all of our problems. And Lord, sometimes the answer isn't us knowing or understanding. Sometimes the answer is us just trusting you more and and receiving the peace without an answer. Lord, we know they're found in you. We find such comfort in the fact that these enemies of yours weren't able to confuse you or trap you. Bless you, Lord Jesus. We honor you and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.